Hello and welcome to the Red Olive Fibonacci podcast, the podcast all about the brilliant world of data covering future trends and topical tech. We'll be joined by experts in the data sphere to share their opinions and advice. I'm your host, Nikki Rudd. Today's episode is the first of a two-part interview recorded during lockdown with Robin Hayden. Robin has worked for over 20 years in data and has a wealth of experience in machine learning, AI, large-scale engineering, analytics and product development. In various chief data officer roles, he's delivered over 100 machine learning models into production, being responsible for tens of millions in additional revenue and hundreds of millions in spend. The first part of the conversation covers a lot of ground from crypto and AI, data ethics and Skynet to the best use of the cloud for businesses looking to update and how to run a data migration project. So let's go. I thought we could start off if you could just tell me a little bit about how you got into the world of data. It was a bit of a long uh, journey. I actually it was quite into the sort of AI space from very early on, but you couldn't really get a job in that unless you were a researcher and or something in that space. And you know that that wasn't an option that was open to me at the time. So I went off and did lots of sort of early internet type work, and it started to become apparent that we were able to do really smart things. It was basically all based off of big data, you know, and it was starting to become apparent that we now had enough data that you could go beyond doing uh, sort of ad hoc analysis, you could really start to extract decisions. And it was obvious that at some point it was going to change the way we did all of computing. I sort of moved my career to focus, you know, primarily on data from that point. It's 80% data engineering and (laughs) 20% intelligence, but it is the 20% that's really fascinating. It's a really exciting industry to be involved with, even in the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years. The step changes have really just have jumped. What do you think are the most exciting changes afoot and how do you see things developing over the next two to three years? In this space, I would say definitely, I think the proliferation of edge computing and the ability to push intelligence all the way out to the edge, something that is some people know about it, but it isn't as widely understood in, in this space. People think of big data as big and expensive and the sort of planet killer in many cases <laughs> because these big models, and there are some big models, and they are expensive to build like GPT-3 or Google's competitor to that recently, which was, I think GPT-3 was several billion, a few hundred billion parameters or something. And Google's equivalent not that long ago was over a trillion parameters. And those things really do take enormous amounts of power and computing and stuff to, to build. But the, the flip side is that computing, it takes orders of magnitude more energy to, to process something, to push something all the way to the cloud and back. It, actually, even just pushing data from, from the processor into RAM on your machine versus processor registers is a very expensive, like that distance, that extra distance costs a lot in computing terms. The idea that things like neural networks, that basically they're doing matrix operations over and over again, that's basically taking the same data and recycling it and reprocessing it over and over again in, in the processor. So in many ways, it's actually very power efficient. And this idea that once you have these, in, these models and they can do inference out at the edge on some very low power devices, I mean, there's this real... Um, yeah, you know, as, as they're starting to become embedded in all sorts of things, cars obviously being the most prominent of those, but in almost anything that's out in our environment, in all sorts of sensors and things, you're getting really low power chips and things that are optimized for this. And I think our whole world may well become 
much, much more intelligent. And you combine that with things that are emerging, like the crypto space, which if you go beyond the currencies, is really just people exploring how far can we take this distributed computing, this sort of collaborative computing, and perhaps we've had a, a large amount of centralization, which I suppose is a bit counter to what was the, the original sort of spirit of the internet when it was very like open for everyone. And now we've got this consolidation around a few big powers and there's a lot of political backlash to that and all the rest. At the same time, you've got things like crypto space developing. And despite the sort of hype, and I'm sure a lot of people you know, may still get hurt in, in the investment world there, but I think the idea of being able to encrypt and process things very widely and, and developing those sort of they're almost like democratic networks that allow people to share processing of data and stuff and the file storage and stuff in ways that we couldn't do before. Uh, and you leverage that with the sort of ubiquitous intelligence and the ability to run intelligent algorithms on, on everything. It's hard to actually really to even fully imagine what that might mean. Honestly, if you think of an entire world where everything is more intelligent, where, you know, there also, where there's not necessarily one or two big controllers of that world, that, that could be a very radically different world. And of course, if you zoom forward even further and you look at things like quantum computing, which doesn't solve everything, a particular class of problems, but certainly then there are some very big problems and things that were much, much harder to do. And so if you if you zoom forward another decade or so, or have a little, maybe two, I don't know, however long it takes to do that, uh, you know, then we just have this another sort of order of magnitude for a certain class of problems, another sort of order of magnitude improvement in sophistication that we're able to achieve. So it just feels like this idea that I, I don't, I don't really obsess much about generalized intelligence. And these people who think about Skynet's going to take over the world, I think it's impossible to say how far we are from something when we we don't know we don't know we don't have a map to getting there. If you know what I mean, we could we that could be. A decade away, it could be a million years away. No, nobody really actually knows. So I don't really spend much time thinking about that. But I do think that it's obvious that over the next decade, even all of our products are going to be much more intelligent and not just the products that we're used to using on the internet, all of our products, the things that are in our house and in our cars and in our gardens and that sort of thing. And that's, yeah, that's really exciting. <laughs> what would you say when it comes to that kind of intelligence and what's your take on the kind of the ethics around it? And that kind of ethical data question. Te technology is neutral. The nuclear fission process is is just nuclear fission. You know, uh, when you put it into bombs, it's obviously a bad thing. And I think the same can be true of of a lot of technology. So there will be people who abuse them. This is not dismissing that. I think it's very important that as a society we think about ethics and we think about things like bias and all the rest. I don't think we're actually worse off as a society. I think it's, it swings back and forth. We get more sophisticated. We keep progressing, and I think there will be. There'll be moments of disruption. Maybe it's things like that crypto space wrestles some of that power back from the centralized control some of the big cloud providers and things have now, or maybe it's something else. And in that moment, opportunities will be created. And of course, you will have people who take advantage of that and there will be negative side effects. But I've also no doubt that I was doing, um, for example, when I did my master's, I did quite a bit of stuff that was medically focused, even though I'm not in that space now at all. I did things that was looked at like epilepsy and heart conditions and things like that and looking at trying to detect certain conditions or, or forecast them and that sort of thing the one or two things i did what really drove this kind of home to me the, the power of this stuff is that today if you took like this particular sort of epilepsy condition that we're looking at they would have five or six experts sit around us these are people who it takes well over a decade before they you know can even at the level where they're qualified to sit in front of a screen and you've got like maybe five of these sometimes looking at someone with this condition that's a problem right now as humanity's got with there's seven billion of us and maybe we get to 10 billion or more who knows and we just have a critical shortage of, of those kind of skills and so 
that sort of analysis and diagnosis and stuff, I don't, we're not displacing doctors and things entirely, but we're certainly augmenting them and making it possible to, for a lot more people to scale up things like healthcare. And so you can't possibly see that as an all bad thing. That is, if there's 7 billion people now, probably 1 billion of us have okay healthcare. Some people would argue whether how okay our healthcare is, but it's certainly much better than the other, than the vast majority of the population. So I think. Those kinds of things, automating intelligence scales up a lot of things which make it easier to sustain the people that we have with a lot better healthcare, probably better food, probably better legal representation. That's another field where legal representation is extremely expensive, but you're getting all of this stuff emerging, which is automating some of the analysis in, in the legal space, which is probably going to democratize legal representation. There's all those kind of things that I just can't help seeing the opportunity for good. For sure, there is some. There are some issues. There are things like bias and other things in our, in our data sets. And it, I think on that particular thing, bias, it's probably worth talking about. Bias isn't. There's a bad bias and there's a good bias, right? When you hire somebody for a job, in a sense, they've got a certain amount of bias built into them. And bias in the sense that they have come to know a certain domain and they've come to exp- they, they've come to get familiar with things so they lean towards when something happens they lean towards saying oh my experience tells me that this is probably that right and that in in, in the machine learning world there's this notion of bias variance trade-off and in fact in that sense you don't want models that are completely unbiased because every time they get a new data point they would just leap to a new conclusion and they wouldn't actually be learning anything so they learn a bit of bias which is actually useful the kind of bias that we talk about and we think is bad is when we learn we, we learn biases that are not useful. We, we learn things that are incorrect, like the fact that, let's say, the color of someone's skin determines whether they're good at a particular job, which is blatantly incorrect. And so that's not a useful bias. But all that's doing, it's not that the technology has introduced the bias. What it's doing is it's forcing us to confront the fact that sort of bias has been implicit in all of our in all of our data and in all of our examples and things. So we're training the stuff off of that and it's learning the bias and it's forcing us to confront that and say, hold on, perhaps we need to correct that. But the, but it's not the algorithm that's causing it. It's decades and millennia and years and years of, of bias that we've developed as a society. You could even say it's a positive that this is triggering that conversation. And now that it's scaling that up and people are saying, hold on, you're scaling up algorithms and things that are now re-entrenching this bias we want to get rid of. So it's amplifying the conversation, which is, it, I, th- I think, it's a good thing. Let's talk a little bit about scale, because the work that you've done with Red Olive on a, a couple of projects, most recently at Gamesys, part of it was moving to the cloud. And I'm guessing that's really where scale comes in. What would you say is the big deal with cloud? What are the big business drivers? Where does that enable you to go next? Cloud for me is just, it's about, you could slot other things in, you're not just cloud. What you're trying to do all the time is you're continually trying to stand on the shoulders of giants. So how we progress as a society is we build on the things that other people have done before us. There's this idea of don't don't reinvent the wheel. We make progress by basically... We do more than the generation before us by using everything that they've done and adding to it. And when you build things, if you say build software or build algorithms and that sort of thing, what you do find sometimes people at the earlier stages in their careers, they're very interested in learning the underlying mechanics of things. So they go off and they they want to build everything from the ground up. 
And, and sometimes what happens is you get people who are more senior. Very often they, they, they start to change their attitude, right? They, they, they start to become, has someone else built this? And then they and then what they look for is the stuff that someone else hasn't built yet. And then they build that. And then usually it's building on all of the things people have built before. Cloud aside, even things like normal software development, almost everyone now uses frameworks and all sorts of things that other people have built and they build on top of them and they wire them together. And cloud is just one of those things. It's saying that you don't differentiate yourself by, say, installing a database. So that's just something that sort of has to be done to facilitate, let's say, the, the analysis or the machine learning or whatever work that we then do on top of that. And so what cloud is giving you, it's giving you the ability to offload all that non-differentiating stuff. In economic terms, one of the one of the things that certainly served us well is this, you know, is, is a certain amount of specialization. Right? And what it's allowing you to do is allowing you to take the experts, the top specialists in those areas, in setting up that infrastructure and making it available as services and that sort of thing, concentrating them in a few places. And then reusing their effort and everyone else reusing their effort. So that for me is that the point with cloud is what you're trying to get. You're not trying to save money. You're trying to increase productivity. You're trying to not build things again, spend all your effort building the stuff that's going to improve your business in your domain in, in, in some way, r- rather than installing a database or installing, I don't know, it could be a streaming platform or whatever the case may be. And it does. It really does increase your productivity. If anyone has worked with, let's say, in the space, in data space, like a big data warehouse, it's really easy these days with something like, say, BigQuery. You just use it, right? There's a, you, you, well, there's obviously still things you have to do, but there was a time when you had to spend a lot more time. You had to have a lot more DBAs and things optimizing your system. And that's if you're a business that's got a team of, I don't know, you might have a team of two people. If one of them has to do all of them, maintain the database and optimize that all the time, that's half the capacity. But even bigger teams, you've got a team of 100. I can bet you that if you're doing it on-premise, 20% of those is permanently looking after your environment. And that's 20% you're not spending on some sort of business differentiator. With that, you're talking about the teams. How do you get it so that team and culture are tied into that? Because I'm guessing there is a sort of a bit of an education that might come along with that kind of moving to the cloud and how differently you might have to work than in a traditional sort of data and IT project. How important is it to have the vision and be able to communicate that internally to the rest of the organization? It's not really a hard sell anymore to tell everyone that everyone's moving to the cloud and we got to do it too. Now, people may not always recognize why. I think that's the, you know, the, the people who, if you've got, say, technologists and people who who are working on the platforms, for example, they're always very willing to do it because they know it's where everyone else is going and they they want their careers to progress. I think executives these days increasingly, because everyone's doing it, it just seems it's the kind of common wisdom, right? So that's what you do. Now, I think the the important thing now, it's not so hard to sell people on the idea of doing cloud. I think it's just, it's probably more important just to make everyone understand what is it do you want from cloud? Why are you doing cloud? Why is everyone doing it? You're getting those kind of philosophies out there and saying, look, what we're trying to get is we're trying to, you know, offload all the um, non-differentiating effort because that's where you will get people trying to build things themselves or you'll get it's a hard thing sometimes to move something when you've got a complicated on-premise platform for example and it could be data it could be any other software and it's actually quite hard to move from one to the other so you had a lot of this sort of lift and shift type mentality and the reason that doesn't work is because it doesn't leverage this idea that you're offloading all the non-differentiating work if you're fundamentally still doing most of the install and maintaining all the applications so a lot of 
startups, but even bigger organizations are, you know, getting there where they're sort of saying, okay, well, actually, why don't we, you know, shift all of this, well, a lot of stuff to something that's more uh, serverless. The idea that it's as a service, I just use it, I just write some code and deploy that rather than have to um, manage all the intermediate steps. That's That in itself is a lot of work to get there. So it is actually sometimes easier for people just to think in terms of, okay, what if I just do what I was doing, but to do it on the cloud? And I think that's that's probably where people fail, where they, don't, where they end up increasing their bill because this is like renting or buying a house in some respect. If you're just going to do exactly what you did before, then you're better off buying than renting because <laughs> they've got a margin right on top. They're doing a little bit of work underneath the hood. But if that's if you don't change your attitude, you will just spend more money and you won't get the benefits. So I think that's the, the important part is understanding what you're trying to get is, is additional productivity. And other things as well, there's some philosophies there that I think people, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been doing it so long, it doesn't seem new to me anymore. But it's I don't, I'm not sensing them getting a lot of resistance to the ideas anymore. But I think other things people don't fully always fully grasp if they're not in that world. Emphasis changes from things like managing availability of service to managing costs. And what I mean by that is if you use cloud properly and you use things like auto scaling and all the rest, and you use like chaos monkeys and these things where you're actually deliberately trying to to take out services to see, to make sure things are resilient, you try to take out services, say in the middle of the day, and then because if they are going to break, it's better to it's better for them to break while everyone's around, basically, as a philosophy with something like that. But that, that's all facilitated by this idea that as, an, as a consumer, you can use the cloud as if it's an infinite resource. And that's great because you can build services that never go down. So the first thing you've got to philosophically get into that mindset. Okay, we live in a different world where things can be incredibly robust, where they can just scale up and down as as our market scales up and down. And that is actually, that's a, a, a great attribute for, for any organization to have, to be able to adapt like that to circumstances. The flip side, of course, is that before your costs were then finite in the sense you bought some stuff and you might, your service might go down because it's overloaded, but your your costs were still fixed. So that that's where I think you need to pay a bit more attention to cost management and that sort of thing. And that can be tricky. Like I've been in a company where, you know, early stages of the project. Someone was like, how much is it going to cost? I was like, well, we've just started doing it. Like we've just launched. I have to spend a few months <laughs> figuring out how greedy this service is. And you kind of work through it for a bit in the beginning, but you do have to spend some time, work through that, and then spend a lot of time putting together those mechanisms where you actively trade off that sort of cost versus versus availability and performance for your customers and that sort of thing. So it's things like that. It's those nuances, I think, is understanding you're trying to be more productive. You're trying to, you can build a sort of bulletproof service, very easy to port internationally and all sorts of things if you do it right. It's understanding all those things and specifically designing for that so that you actually get the value from cloud. I think that's the bit which, you know, you still have to spend time banging the drum, making sure everybody understands that. But it's not so hard to convince people to go to cloud anymore if they're not in cloud already. Do you think that within the development side of things people are braver knowing that if you're in a cloud using a cloud platform that it gives you more scope to try things out and if it doesn't work so you're kind of doing a bit more of that um cicd as you're moving along that's how you develop and do you think it they sort of they come together almost they fit together a little bit like hand in a glove they do in in theory kind of cicd is I don't know, orthogonal to the cloud, they complement each other, right? But you could do a lot of that stuff on premise. It makes it easier to do it on cloud because you can just 
spin up and down instances on demand and that sort of thing because you can treat this thing as almost an infinite resource makes it very easy to build these very flexible pipelines and stuff but at its heart the idea of agile is about continuous feedback and it seems obvious that if you wait till if we look at traditional much earlier philosophies where you had waterfall type philosophies in development and stuff where people would design whole big programs and projects and stuff and then you phased them and you had design in the front and then you had this development and then you had testing and you had some sort of release and the problem with that stuff is all the uat and all of that sort of thing was very late in the day uh, and, and the projects took so long that lots changed in, in the meantime and you got to the end and then you, you figured out that there were all sorts of things that needed to change the world had changed or, or there's a few or things have been misinterpreted there's a lot of people in the middle there's a lot of messages that have to be understood and there's a lot of misinterpretation that happens there so there's nothing quite like putting actual product in front of people saying well, did i get it wrong or is it still is it still in the context of my environment and stuff and so that's really agile a lot of it basically centers around that it's can we get feedback very early in the process can we have short cycles can we have lots of sort of show and tell type things can we and it depends on the product you're building but can we continuously can we encourage that continuous feedback and then see those problems early because it's a lot cheaper to fix something when you've written three lines of code then at the end of the project when you've written a whole complex thing several things all depending on each other and you have to unwind many things so if, if you say that's the heart of agile then the CSED thing just is a natural fit to that i'm saying it's orthogonal to the cloud in the sense that that is about csd is about really just putting things out often and quickly and efficiently right automating the stuff that you can automate the, the process from from checking in your code through to automating the testing and of course there's a discipline there about writing a lot of tests and test first development and that sort of thing which makes it makes that work right it gives you the confidence you look at these large organizations that have tens of thousands of you know, releases a day and stuff they can only do that because the process is designed so that every time something is checked in and merged to to main it it's automatically tested and all the rest it's not entirely bulletproof it's you're much more confident in an environment where something won't go all the way into production unless it gets thoroughly tested and this whole process is really automated that sort of gives you a confidence it means you can deploy very often and if you can deploy little things very often like that then that fits that sort of feedback cycle. You've got lots of little changes happening all the time and occasionally something will go wrong, but then it's going to be one small thing that you can roll back and you can learn from and you become a very adaptable, a very, and I'm not using the term agile as in with all the baggage of what agile, we think agile means in software. I just mean you truly become an agile organization in the sense that you become very sensitive to little changes in your environment and you change really quickly and you evolve fast. And of course, if you can evolve quickly, then you've got an inherent advantage over something that doesn't evolve quickly. So that's where I think CRCD fits in. Again, it's, it, it enables you to evolve really quickly. How it relates to cloud is cloud has enabled us to, because cloud has also allowed us. So in the past, if you wanted to do something new, you would you would have to go and get quite a large CapEx budget, let's say to buy some license to install some equipment to do all of those things upfront. And so obviously in cloud now, if you want to do something small, you can do something small. That's a, a key point, right? You can go and try I talked about Google, let's say Amazon, they've got something like, you know, Kinesis or something. There, there are products that, the products I actually prefer, some of Amazon's products, the underlying product. So let's say like a, a Kafka or something, the, the underlying product, I think it was a really good product. There's other things that have come along in, that's in the streaming space that, that have kind of improved on it a bit. Historically, you've had to go and, you've had to go and buy, you had to go do a case to spend like, 100k plus with someone to get started 
And of course, you can go onto Amazon with something like Kinesis and you can just start and you can pay like a few quid just to do a POC, basically. So that fits into the cycle of just being able to iteratively do the next thing, see if it works. It fits this whole picture of continuous evolution in very gradual steps. Excellent advice from Robin there, but we're going to have to leave our conversation and pick up on it in the next episode, where he'll be talking about the sorts of skills people need to develop to get ahead in the industry. It's full of interesting and useful info, so make sure you subscribe to the Red Olive Fibonacci podcast from wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. Thanks all for today. Thanks for listening and catch up next time.